This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. Today, I, I don't know why I'm starting off like that, actually. I am your host, Eric. I mess up the intro every single time. I don't even know why I bother trying to do an intro. We should probably record one to go in front of me. Okay, I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me co-hosting today is J.M. Paquette. I'd let her introduce herself, but she's always delayed and says the weirdest things. But our guest today is April Lynn Pike. Woo! Okay, we're going to talk about what we're drinking I, in my Drinking with Author swag, which we will send you, April, is um, I'm, I put lemonade, I just got home moments ago, and threw gin and lemonade together like a boss. Like a boss. JM, what are you uh, drinking there? I just have tea. It's, it's chamomile and very soothing. It's very exciting chamomile. That is because she forgot she was on a podcast tonight and made herself <laughs> chamomile tea. <laughs> Moving on, April, Lynn, what do you have? I have an awesome teapot and it's very pretty and I am drinking fancy tea. Um, I have white truffle rooibos tea um, and I'm pretending that I'm really drinking because I have a little bottle of honey flavored Jack Daniels and it is sitting beside my tea alcoholating it by osmosis. I like it. It's the spirit of honey Jack which yes. is one of the spirits of Christmas past. So at least one of my Christmas past. <laughs> okay. So April Lynn, for those who do not know your writing, would you tell all of our wonderful fans what you write? I write young adult fantasy. Um, I'm best known for my wing series, which is my <clears throat> number one New York times bestselling series. Um, and it, <laughs> brag out there brag i like it um it started in 2009 10 11 12 and then i actually ended up writing a follow-up book in 2016 and i've got another one that i'm working on this fall because it's just a lot of fun um aside from the wing series i have um i write about ghosts and oracles and then i have a series that is set in the near future in the palace of versailles um, that's, I guess you would call that more sci-fi because it is in the future where the technology is the magic. Um, and that's why that one's called glitter. And then I have a brand new, I brought, I brought visuals. I have a brand new series called heat, which is not nearly as smutty as it sounds, whether that is a good or bad thing is up to you. Um, so it's my newest series and it just launched this summer and it is about dragons. Ooh, very cool. I know Jenna's all about the dragons. <gasps> the teacup is adorable. Sorry. It came with the teapot. My mommy got it for me because she I knows I like pretty little <clears throat> things. It's very delicate. Um, what was it? What is on the teacup you got me, Jenna? It's behind me. What does it say? Something Raisin about hussy. Yeah. Yes, I have <laughs> a teacup over there that Jen got me. Wait, if I do this, I can look, I'm pointing to it. And it says brazen hussy, but it's would absolutely drink tea out of a cup that said brazen hussy. Yes. 106%. Yes. Okay. So um, when did you start writing? So writing, I think is different than storytelling. I was known for telling stories from almost as soon as I could talk. My family nickname was the queen of La La Land. 
Um, I had my family at a signing one time and I said, when I was little, I was known as, and I pointed to them and they all went, queen of la la land. And I was like, see, I'm not lying. They knew. Um, (laughs) I did like, I did the English class writing that everyone does. And and I, I was good at it. I mean, it was something that I really liked and I, I, all my stories were always longer than, than required and all of that. Um, but I, I didn't really start thinking of writing as what I was going to do for my career until I was in college because I did major in creative writing. I have a degree in creative writing. But even then, there was such an emphasis on short stories, which actually really intimidate me because they're so small. You have to squish so much in this tiny box. Um, and so I didn't actually start writing a novel until I was about 22. And I got about a hundred pages into it before I discovered the secret that all authors know, which is that writing is hard and I quit. And uh, it was another two years before I started again. And um, at that point, it was probably another three years solid of writing and about three and a half books before I signed with my first agent. And even then I had to write another book for her before I got one that sold. So a good five solid years of writing with an eye toward publication. And then, you know, 21 years before that of of pretty good dabbling. Wow. Now, Jen has a PhD in English literature. Mm -hmm. So you guys could gab probably endlessly about making people write short stories. Her favorite part is plagiarism right now because, yeah. No, I teach English at a community college now. And yeah, it's the internet has just made it super easy. Um, Um, That makes sense. Yeah. Plus there's software now for those listening that they just run it through and it detects stuff online. Yeah. They did not have that when I was in college. Not that it mattered because I wrote my own stuff. Right. But uh, yeah. Yeah, you stuck I to did Google turn it. in. I turned in a paper for two classes once. I tr- I changed all of the references to literature to drama and mm-hmm. uh, turned it into both classes. And I'm not sure if that would count with the software today. Would it's, it catch it? If the other class had turned it in, yes. But if you like, if you're a student in my class and you say, "Hey, I wrote this great paper for another class. Can I tweak it and use it again?" I say yes. Really? I, I call it's called dovetailing, and you do it all through grad school. Uh-huh. Like, I'm going to use these seven sources in every paper I write this semester, right? So you're just mm-hmm, doing the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, but if you don't tell the teacher, that's when you would get in trouble. And I never would have thought no. of asking. I was like, yes. I'm gonna sneak by, yeah. you know. And I was like, I think I'm fine ethically. I did all of my own work. It is your own work. So Mm -hmm. unless, you know. But but I was analyzing plays in a literature class and analyzing the same plays in a Like humanities or drama. Yeah. So it just depends. People are are specific one way or the other. I would ask. I just got a tea delivery in a fancy. I was going to say, do you have a tea delivery? Oh, no. Oh, and you got a cute cup. Yeah. And look, look, I have. I have a tea cozy. my cats will deliver my tea. Oh, my boyfriend. Did you make that? <laughs> no, Etsy made it. <laughs> <laughs> She's creative. Right? That Etsy is perfect. Mm-hmm. Etsy. Okay. Sidetrack. Um, writing. So you, if you got an agent, you decided to go the traditional path. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide that path? Not that it's wrong. I'm, it's, 
Inquiry yeah, I mean, no. back in the day, one, I was still such an amateur. I had never been through an editing process with a professional editor. And I thought I was a pretty good self-editor. And I did have to learn that along the way. You know, you look back and you're like, I used to edit by hitting spell check. And now I know how to like tear the guts out of a story. And I thought I had learned how to tear the guts out of a story. And then I went through editing with a professional editor and I was like, whoa, you know, um, <laughs> And I, I kept expecting to get fewer edits the longer I went. And it did take me a good six or seven books before I started getting fewer edits. Um, oh, wow. And I just needed that. The benefit of being in physical stores was so much bigger than um, it used to be. Um, no, so much, excuse me, was so much bigger then than it is now. Um, now it feels like it's more important to just be on Amazon um, than in Barnes and Noble. Um, in fact, uh, one of the big stores that did a push on my book when it first came out was Borders, which doesn't even exist anymore. Um, so the physical store aspect was a huge deal when I first came out. And there were so few ways for um, indie authors to get into physical stores um, when I first started out, I had about 5% of my sales via the internet, any kind of ebook, um, and 95 were, were paperbacks and hardcovers. And now it's more like 50-50. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a different choice now. Um, in fact, my, this one, I published via my own company. Um, I have a company that my husband and I run. We're technically a book packager. We've done two book packaging projects and then we publish all of my stuff when we get rights back. Um, so more than half of my books are now published via my company um, rather than New York Publishing. Um, but in the beginning, I, was, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to put out a decent pro product and I didn't have an audience or the confidence to get one. Um, and it was just a better fit for me. No, I, I think that makes sense. I don't think any journey can be wrong as long as you're on a journey. Like mm -hmm. if you're stopped on the journey, like I don't think you should submit your book, you know, for 20 years to a publisher and hope that then they publish you. Like there's this point in time you need to call the ball and go another route to get your work published, right? And you have to be honest with yourself. Um, YA is a notoriously up and down industry. So, you know, I have this, this fairy series that did really well, continues to sell really well, is still in print. Um, and then I had a Cursed God series that came out with Razorbell. Um, and within three years of the first book coming out, it went out of print and they gave me my rights back. Um, without ever publishing the third book. And that was like directly after my big hit series. Um, and I've had kind of some wavering in the middle since then. Um, and so for me to take my platform that I got with my first series and put out my own stuff um, makes sense for me now in a way that it didn't 10 years ago. No, that, no it told, that does make sense. And I think... You know, um, when you talk about YA, why did you decide to write YA? Like, why, why did you go there? <laughs> I tripped and fell into it. Um, I got my agent with an adult fantasy story. And I always have to, like, qualify that. Not adult fantasy, but a fantasy for the adult market. Because um, those are slightly different things. <laughs> different things. And they maybe can both be published. <laughs> um, 
And then uh, I, I started writing another book um, for my agent and it was a teen book that actually didn't become a book until another four or five years down the road. Um, and I had like a voice as in like writers have a voice, not necessarily like a voice in my head, which some other writers have, but I had, I had a voice on the page um, and a character and an opening and I didn't really have a plot. So I tinkered around with that for a couple of months and it wasn't really going anywhere um, and put it away. But the next idea that I had when I had to look at, well, do a, this, is a, this is a coming of age story, um, the mythos that I had, and I could either make it brand new college, the kind of new adult thing or YA. At that point, nobody was even saying new adult. And so it made more sense for me to make it um, high school. Um, and so that's what it ended up being. The series has progressed to the point where if you had to label it, it probably would be new adult, um, because the characters have gotten older and there's some older characters and teen characters. Um, but initially it was just because I had a coming age, coming of age story. And I had to decide if it was going to be your first coming of age, which really happens when you're a teenager or your second coming of age, which happens in college. That's very cool. So you, you write fantasy and you've written um, a sci-fi because it's in the future. Do you have a lot of technology in it or is it just sci-fi because it's in the future? There's quite a bit of technology in it. And I had to lean on my techie husband for a lot of that. Um, the Palace of Versailles is a smart house, for example, and they have wearable contact lenses that connect them to uh, the internet, um, self-driving cars, which we mostly have now. And then their, their servants, instead of being human, are, are robots. And um, even the, it's, it's a book about drugs. Even the drug, I had to do quite a bit of research on um, as far as medical technology goes. And I found out what CRISPRs are and that played a part in that. Um, so there is quite a bit of technology and like everything I wrote, I had to run by my husband to be like, does this make technological sense? I love that. I love that. No, that's smart because we all now look at Back to the Future. If you look at that movie, was it Back to the Future 2? Two, two, which is the one that's mm -hmm. the two. And, you know, that was totally believable. I remember when that movie came out, I was like, this is believable. This is a thing yeah. that's going to happen. Not there yet. Not even close to the The puffy jackets, yeah. <laughs> Where's my hoverboard? Yeah. When I remember I, when I was in maybe fifth grade uh, reading, you know, they had the, the like one page long uh, news letters that they would give. So they had one that was that was predicting the future. And one of the big predictions was video phones. And th the, the drawing that went along with it was like a sit on your uh, table handset like we had phones at the time with a screen there. So it was like, a, well, it was a lot like a very small laptop that would sit on the table and you would make a call and talk to the person. You could see them while they were talking. And like, that was a big, I was like, whoa, that would be amazing. And now like we do it when we walk down the street. So that did come to pass and was more advanced than, uh, in fact, if somebody made a video phone that sat on the, the table, like a, a phone, you'd be like, why can't I pick it up? They and go did the have room? those actually. They did have those. Did they for what? Open? that had a screen on them. I'm trying to remember exactly, but it was like that, but you had to be in another one of those 
thing. Well, I think technology is interesting because some things to me go super duper fast. And then other things I'm like, why can't I have a, a computer where I can use a, a pen and, you know, like, because all of the writing software they have that quote unquote does that where you can handwrite and have it change it into text does not work very well. I've tried like every single version of this. And it I always wonder why well. my iPhone doesn't just naturally come with a stylus. I'm yeah, like, wouldn't that be easier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a I I have an iPad. I actually just gave it to my daughter because I had an iPad and I got a stylus and I was like, yes. And somebody said this software works really. No, it doesn't. Oh. No, <laughs> the frick it does not. I tried yeah. everything on that because I'm like, why can't they do that? That should be so simple to do. But we can keep making phones smaller, and now we can make these ones so they're flip phones. Yes. Yeah. But we're back to a flip phone again. When did mm-hmm. this happen? Oh, you have one. Do that again. Do that again. I missed it. Oh, my goodness. It just it bends my brain. It does. It hurts because it's a regular, like, Ooh. Yes. And then it does, and it's got a little... While I was doing edits on Glitter, I um, got accepted as a glass explorer in the Google Glass program. And uh, that was a bit of technology that just had the kibosh put on it because of really bad PR. Um, And so I got to spend about six months walking around with the Google Glass on with the little kind of frame of the glasses looking thing that like has the nose pieces here and had the little cube here. and I wore it to Comic-Con at one point and like everybody, Google Glass, whoa, you know, it was fun, but it was interesting because I was playing around with wearable um, technology like that in glitter. It was contacts, but that felt like a natural jump from glass to contacts. Um, so it was interesting to feel like I was being the missing link between my present and my near future book. Um, And I actually really liked glass and the idea that you could clandestinely record people, which actually wasn't true. You can visibly see when the glass is recording. You can't, there were times where I wanted to take a picture of something embarrassing and I couldn't because I knew the person would see the flash. Um, But actually you can do more clandestine recording with your phone than you ever could with Google glass. But um, that that weird PR where people were like, but it'll be in bathrooms, um, just just halted it. And it wasn't that the technology didn't work. It was that the public rejected it. And that was so interesting to watch unfold. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. I didn't ever heard that part of it. Um, I did think that if people could get very distracted by it, and mm-hmm. we already have such a problem with people on their phones being distracted and stuff like that. Like, you know, I ju- that's what I thought of. I was like, imagine people being able to, unless they set it up so it would shut off in a car, mm-hmm. like, so you couldn't have it on in a car or something like that. Like people, like, look at what people are doing with the Tesla. So we have self-driving cars. They have all this entertainment and then they're still crashing. Like, yeah, I don't don't know why exactly. I'm not a Tesla expert, but I'm like, we, we haven't got this completely figured out, but even though Tesla says, do not stop paying attention. Like you, you are still supposed to be driving your car. There are people that sleep on their way to work because they can, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and And eventually I imagine we'll get to the point where they can, but we're not there yet. No, 
I've driven in LA traffic. I would love to sleep on my way to work <laughs> if I drove and in LA traffic. And you certainly would have lots of time to sleep. <laughs> and then Corona hit and we, we didn't have to drive to work. I was having that conversation today. It's changed, but I think that also changed a little bit about book stuff because not that you can't order books and a lot of people are hardcore book needs to touch them. Jen happens to be one of those people that has to touch the books. Sounds inappropriate when I say it like that. <laughs> books, But um, I think it opened the door for more um, uh, e-reading and stuff like that on different devices, being mm-hmm. at home and needing, because Netflix has a ton, not that there's not a ton of entertainment, but eventually you need to go other channels of entertainment, mm-hmm. you know? With so. libraries being closed, I know a lot of people shifted. <clears throat> to yeah. ebooks that wouldn't have. I have a question for you. So when you're doing your, for the sci-fi, you said you ran it by your husband, but did you do a bunch of research? Like, did you have the sci-fi idea first or did you, you were like, no, I have this story in Versailles and I want to do it and I'll just push now. Like how did you- Some of, some of both. Um, if there was, if there was a bit of technology that was important, the plot, I needed to run it by him before I got myself into a plot problem. Um, but for the most part, I, I didn't want the tech to be so out of reach to the average teen reader. Um, so if it made common sense to me, I went with it. Um, and while the technology plays a commanding role, it is a supporting role. Um, and the idea um, actually is, is more about the government that she's in Um, And I got to learn a new word that I did not make up. It's a real word. And that is corporatocracy, which is when a corporation owns the government. So um, this this book was actually originally set in space um, where a big corporation essentially sent out fleets of people to mine resources on a moon of like Jupiter, I think is what we eventually went with um, and then took away. Um, I say we, because I bounce everything off and I bounce everything off my husband, but I did the writing. Um, (laughs) um, But um, the idea was to have a company that had bought sovereignty over something. In this case, it ended up being the complex of the palace of Versailles. Originally it was a moon on Jupiter. Um, And then the CEO is the king and they set up at the, as both CEOs and monarchs do, they set things up the way they like them. And so their society like acted and dressed like they were from the far distant past. So in glitter, they all wear the the clothes of the um, uh, 16th and 17th centuries. They dress like he's the sun king and they have the big panniers and the hair and all of that. And they have all the courtly manners and, and uh, you, your, your duchy, if you're a duchess, for example, is your large suite of rooms within the, the Palace of Versailles. Um, except that you get to get away with all of the, the actual kind of gross historical things. You get to just take them away. You get to cherry pick all of the gorgeous fun parts um, and have modern sanitation and running water, for example. Um, So they get to, it's a Hollywood version of the, um, of of the 1500s um, by design, because this wealthy guy was like, I can make a world any way I want to. And he does. And I love Rococo. So there it is. Yes. Lots of that. (laughs) 
my goodness. Okay, we are gonna take a quick break and we are gonna be right back with Drinking With Authors. All right. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break and our commercial is, hey, do you wanna be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Recording in progress. Okay. So, um, let's... You have gone to conventions. Um, have you... Well, let me go back one question. Have you always read what you like to read? Do you like to read young adult fantasy... I do. Um, And I certainly read more of it when I was more actively writing it. Um, Like I put out heat in, in, in March, but I hadn't had a new book out since 2017 before that. Um, So when I was really actively publishing at least a book a year in YA, I did a lot more reading, if nothing else, because I had friends that had books coming out. And sometimes you were like part of the brainstorming process and wanted to read them. Um, it's rare for me to read something that doesn't have magic or history in it. Um, and then in the last maybe four or five years, I've gotten more into, it's a genre that I like to call a slice of larger than life. Um, but maybe you would kind of know what I was talking about if I said mommy thrillers. Um, So it's like where there's something like a murder or a kidnapping or something that is larger than life, but really the writing is about everyday life and you like recognize your neighbors in the characters of the books more than like hardcore police procedurals. Um, Leanne Moriarty, for example, um, Big Little Lies, uh, particularly I really love The Husband's Secret and that sort of thing. I really don't write that. Mostly I write fantasy, sci-fi, and YA. And that's you know, a lot of what I read. It's interesting. I write um, horror. I imagine that, that whole Dan Wells connection that we <laughs> through, right? But I write horror. And one thing I have to say, though, that irritates the crap out of me is when they try to go heavy police procedural and they don't know what they're talking about and they don't yes. know how it works. Yes. And every... so. What's very interesting to me is we, I ended up meeting an author on this um, podcast who was a friend of mine, a friend, and she works for the forensic labs in the state of Florida. And she now works for, I think the department of defense. Anyway, she leveled up. I'm probably saying it wrong. It's fine. Leveled up. But um, she uh, was telling me like they get the forensics wrong all the time. And so I was asking, and I actually did some research because I'm, hopefully this year going to finish um, at least the first book in my serial killer series. And I was like, okay, when does the FBI get involved? Like when will they show up? And it was very funny because the answer was pretty like one, they have to be asked or it has to get really horrible news attention that sort of the higher governments, like, please go stop this from continuing Mm -hmm. or it has to cross state lines. Like, cause you know, we're Florida. Florida has a lot of, you know, fun humans that have decided to come to Florida and do weird things um, all over the place. And one of the things they talked about is they didn't send the FBI, like every serial killer, they don't send the FBI. There was one in Ybor City that was, 
a younger man who they ended up finding working at a McDonald's in Ybor City that had killed hmm. several homeless people, I think it was, or something like that. Like he had shot, I think there was homeless people. And he was up to like six, I think, people that he killed. Because, by the way, if you kill more than two now, you're a serial killer, which... Ah, it used to be three. Yeah. Well, I would... Uh, no offense, I actually think it's TV be tells me it used to be three. I guess I don't know that for sure. No, it, it, it used to be three, but... Okay. Um, Bundy, it was three, although he was like way up there. But what I thought was interesting is almost every serial killer book type thing that I read um, has somebody in the, it's an FBI agent and the FBI mm -hmm. agent's been called in and the FBI. And I'm like, they don't call them. I guess if, like, if you can keep it within state lines. Well, that, and if yeah. it's in the same county, and then it depends yeah. on if there's a sheriff, there's like all these things. And so now I'm like completely disheartened. I pick up a book and the moment that says the FBI, I'm like, this bet just not crossing state lines. I'm out. I'm out. I don't <laughs> want to do it anymore. So you, I more, <clears throat> you demand realism in your books. Well, I, I just, it's the pushing out of the story. You talk about being a storyteller. You can push somebody out of the story by making mm -hmm. mistakes like that. Kind of like in technology, absolutely. Sci-fi, the more sci-fi the novel is, you can get into ships and stuff like that. But you oh, start yeah. getting, trying to describe something in a non-actual scientific way or a non-fantastical way. I don't know if that's the right word. People but, complain about horses that way. Like the way that people in fantasy novels will write about horses. And then mm -hmm. I have a friend who's super into horses who's like, oh my God, that would never, you wouldn't do that. That's not how to, and it ruins the rest of the book. Oh my gosh. I was reading, um, it was, it was a, a self-published free romance novel and they can be really good, but sometimes they're really bad. And in the first chapter, she's, she's talking with the guy and she's distracted and she stops steering her horse and he starts to run into a tree. And I'm like, a horse will not run into a tree because you stop yanking on his reins. I was just like, horses are smart. And I, I couldn't pick it back up after that. I'm like. But he said, it's one line that probably she wanted it, the guy to rescue her or something, whatever it was. She probably thought it that. was funny. Oh, she forgot to steer her horse. Just like, you know, you forget to steer your car when you're talking to someone. I don't know. I don't know what she was thinking, but no it's, horse runs into a tree. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, as storytellers, I love that you actually said that. When you're telling a story, you have to keep people in the story. Like mm -hmm. that is a key part of it is how many books do we talk about? We pick up, pick up and we couldn't put down. I picked mm -hmm. it up. I couldn't put it down. I picked it up. I couldn't stop reading. Jen here is infamous for being up all night reading a book that she picks up and she starts it and then she can't put it down. And that to me is the key to being a really good writer is you take that person and it is so hard they're like falling asleep in the kindle hitting them in the face by the way there is a danger similar to books with kindles hitting in the face if you lay on your back um and you're pulling the person through the story mm -hmm. and they can't stop i think anyway i definitely got on it i feel like for me like personally that's always consciously a goal um and i always try to write in such a way in fact i always try to make the last line of my chapter an invitation to read the next chapter um and i i, I am mean i do that on purpose i try to get you to stay up late 
Just no, one I, disappointment. I, I call that Empire Strikes Backing the chapters and the story. Yeah, yeah. I, I made Jen do that in her second book. It was painful. She was doing sort of a Lord of the Rings ending to it. It had like 12 endings as far as I was concerned. And I'm like, this is the middle book. You need to Empire Strikes Back this book. Like, they need to have to go get that next book. Like, no mm -hmm. fail. It was painful for her. It was like, you don't need this. And this is me throwing away her pages. It was on a computer, but <laughs> doing a gesture. None of this. Yes, like, this doesn't need to happen. Why is there an apocalypse? This is a different world. What is going on here? So Nobody um, needs an apocalypse. What made you decide to start your own company? Um, so we we incorporated ourselves into an LLC for tax reasons, um, the summer of 2009. And then, uh, I think it was that same summer, but it might've been the summer after that. It was when diary of a wimpy kid was really big and, um, we're sitting at the kitchen table and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with Deseret book, which is the, uh, the LDS church's bookstore and they are infamous for making Mormon versions of pop culture things, you know, like they have uh, the Pictionary with church historical figures or I said Pictionary. I was thinking of like, guess who came anyway, they take like trades. Yeah. Uh, Lego sets of, of, of church buildings, whatever. Um, and I, I think a lot of, of, of big cultures do that. They're like, it's this for this little niche, niche audience. Um, and I was like, they have all these spinoffs of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. They had the Dork Diaries had just launched. And my, my daughter was like eight or 10 at the time. And she was super into those. And I, you were seeing them pop up as the, the you know, this version, it, it's, it's diary of a wimpy kid for these people, you know, and I was like, I don't know why someone doesn't make a journal of a, a deacon, which is our 12 year olds, um, because like we're really encouraged to journal. So I was like, it could be just like the journals you get, like when you're baptized, you get, you get a little leather bound journal. I'm like, it would totally be great. And it would be exactly the same thing, except it would be adventures specifically to LDS youth. And my husband was like, that's brilliant. We should do that. Um, and about this time, my sister married a guy who is Brandon Sanderson's map maker or was he's now Brandon Sanderson's artistic director. He does a uh, ton of his covers, a lot of his books, interior arts. He makes every ounce of swag that ever comes out of Dragonsteel. But at the time, he was just doing his maps. Um, he now works for him full time. Um, his wife, my sister, runs Brandon Sanderson's life. So uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, but that I was like, we have this. Himself. We've, we've <laughs> interviewed and met with several times, Brian. So I don't know. So, I don't know if I'd wish that upon anyone. It sounds like a lot of fun. And yet like crawling a giant kitten into a box. So yeah. Yeah. Well, she doesn't have to manage him. She just manages like his whole store. Oh, um, and then her husband draws all of his stuff, stickers and covers and all sorts of things. Anyway. So we were like, we just married into this guy and we should totally like combine on this thing. Um, 
but Desert Book is not known for its great contracts. In fact, it's known for its really terrible contracts that are a step away from like servitude. Um, yeah. Things like we get first, uh, we get we get first rejection on or first look at everything you write for the next twenty years. Um, I had a friend who had a contract with them and I sent a clause to my agent and I was like, you've got to check this out. And she was like, why don't they just add in and we get your firstborn? Um, so their contracts were terrible. So what we decided is that we would take our LLC and run us as a packaging company and put everything under my company's name because all of my copyrights and my contracts my publishers are under our LLC's name and we would pitch it to them as a package deal with my brother-in-law Isaac's contract and my husband is the writer's contract being with my company and my husband is a lawyer so he wrote the contracts and then we pitched it as a package to Deseret Book um, so that they couldn't do the rights grabby thing because there were a lot of rights that their boiler track, boiler plate contract wanted that already belonged to a publisher in, in New York. And we we're like, sorry, you can't have those because they're not available. So they were, we, because we were a packaging company and we contracted our illustrator ourselves. <laughs> this is a very long story. Um, no, we were I able know, to I play did. some serious hardball with Deseret book and they published, um, Jacob's Journal of Doom, uh, which is still in print today. And my husband and I both wrote it and um, our brother-in-law illustrated it. And it's based on our nephew, Jacob, who turned 21 yesterday. Oh, wow. Two days ago, two days ago. Um, and that's how the book packaging thing started. And we've done a couple of projects since then. And all of my books that we put out on my own are through the company and my husband does all the cover designing and he writes all the contracts and I write most of the text. Very cool. That's, that's awesome. That is a, that is a very good lawyers are important. I say that. <laughs> yeah. No, well, we um, had our first foreign rights deal. We uh, reissued foreign rights to a, a small Dutch publisher for wings uh, two months ago. Well, that's so, pretty awesome. Very cool. Little deal. <laughs> but hey, you know, the, I think people don't really, you know, it's really interesting. So at my day job, I uh, work with 11 global offices. Um, I'm an executive over HR. And in all these offices, you give something to an employee there, they take it to their lawyer. Like overseas, everybody has a lawyer. They're just lawyers everywhere. Like it's a thing. <laughs> And so when it first started, people were like, oh, I'm going to take it to my lawyer. I'm like, what the crap sticks is going on? Why is everybody going to a lawyer? I think it's the most brilliant thing. I mean, obviously, um, some lawyers are not great lawyers, but having mm -hmm. somebody who can read and go, let me tell you in plain English what this means. Yeah. Especially in the publishing world, because you give up so much stuff you don't realize you give up. And I talk mm -hmm. to people about this on screenwriting and when... Um, people option your books and stuff like that. Like, who was it that got like, I just literally heard this story the other day, they were, they were talking about the person got 15 grand for their book. Who was it? The Witcher. The guy who wrote The Witcher got a total of 15 grand for the rights mm -hmm. for his book. Mm -hmm. Total. 
uh, yeah, he's probably really mad right now, <laughs> but it's so easy to hear. Like I want the rights to your book for X amount. And then you don't have any, that's you know. Edgar Allan Poe all over again. He got what a yeah. hundred dollars for the Raven. Cause they knew his wife was sick and you know, it's still in print and still making money and everything, you know. Well, when Wings was optioned by Disney, which is a thing that has been expired for six or seven years now, um, they did all of the negotiating for everything up front, even though all they were doing was optioning it. So they optioned it, but they set up all of the clauses for if they went on and made a movie, if they made a spinoff, if they used additional books, when everything expired. It's the biggest contract I've ever had. Um, but they set everything out so that your film agent can say, if you make this much money, you have to pay her this much. If you make a spinoff, you're still using her material and you owe her this much. If you use her sequel, you have to pay her this much, etc. Um, and it was, it was like every possible thing that could happen had a clause for if you do this, you have to pay her this. You have to let her do this. You have to, you know, et cetera. It was huge. And it's the only contract that I ever had to go to a bank and get notarized. And uh, boy, did, did I make that banker's day. They were like, what is this? This is a Disney contract. I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, it was 106 pages. And I have never had anything that big. I could see that. But I, I to me, like when I hear that, I go, they had it right now, whether or not they tip the scales in their favor versus your favor, who knows, but mm -hmm. I think that's the way to do it. Because otherwise, you spend, you, you know, you get 15,000 thinking God just got 15,000 for this weird book about this guy who hunts Bob. And now, you know, Henry Cavill is making the Witcher season three, you know, yeah, the toys yeah. and the games and everything else he lost his thing on. You had a Disney thing? How come they never yeah. did anything with it? Do you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, many legs to this story. So it was when Miley Cyrus was really in her heyday and she was attached to Star. But what really happened there is that Miley Cyrus's mom, Tish Cyrus, fell in love with a book. If you've ever seen her at a some sort of event where she's got an open back dress, she has wings tattooed on her back. And um, although they don't look like the wings in my wings book, they were inspired by my book. She was oh. like, that's cool. I want to get a tattoo like that. So she was always the driving force behind that. Um, by the time it really came time to, to start making a movie, she was no longer the right person for a sweeter teen story. Um, and I think that she always had less interest in it than her mother did. Um, but Tish Cyrus has actually kept in contact with us and she is running her own production company now and they are, uh, rereading the series and looking at potentially doing something there. Um, cool. but she's always been the one who really latched onto it. Um, a lot of books, a fair number of books get optioned and I would say less than 10% of them ever get made. Um, so Wings has been optioned. Earthbound was optioned by Warner Brothers for a while. Um, and it was it, it was attached to Nicholas Sparks's production company for a while. Interesting. Um, and that eventually expired. Uh, Glitter is currently under contract with Short and Sweet Productions, which is um, a, a screenwriter named Sarah Bibbles. 
production company and she has not yet pitched it to studios, but she has the option. And then, so that's, that's something you can do as well as just have a screenwriter option your stuff. And she's had that for about three years now. Um, but again, pandemic, <laughs> in fact, well, when she wanted to option in Hollywood it, right now, cause yeah, when she w- wanted to, to renew it one more time, she was like, I know that it's unusual to renew it for a third time, but I hope that you'll let me because basically the last 18 months has been nothing. <laughs> She's no, like, I don't want to let it go before I've even pitched it. So no, yeah. it's true, and not only that, just the um, now there's all these strikes and stuff. We we have an author friend who has a movie coming out in October. It's a horror movie. I forget what it's called. And um, he was like, Yeah, I'm really lucky because there's almost nothing else coming out in October because not this October, huh. next October, because everything's shut down. And with the the you know, different, uh, what are they strikes and stuff like that? Nothing's going to get made for a while. So Mm. definitely, but that's exciting. I mean, that had to be exciting. The first moment somebody says we want to opt your book. Yeah. Um, yeah. The first two weeks that wings was out was a really interesting time for me because it came out and it was, I mean, it was a big book. They, they did really amazing things for me. Um, and it came out and hit the list the first week and everything, But when it came out, I had two foreign rights and it was positioned very well. But um, this was when, you know, YA was just going gangbusters. This was uh, right between Twilight and Divergent. It was like, it was about the same time as the second Hunger Games book was out. Um, And so YA was a big deal. Everybody's eyes were on YA. There were a lot of movie deals being done, lots of foreign rights being done. You know, I had friends who, you know, six months before their book came out, they'd already sold into 15 territories and stuff. And I was, I was like, well, I know I'm a lead title, but you know, I'm not really selling internationally. And, and so then within the first week of the book coming out, that ended up just, I don't think anybody really planned it but that ended up being the timing for the movie deal and they announced it very quickly um which is almost certainly the reason why it came out and hit number one its second week is because that coincided with the the movie announcement and within six months i had 30 foreign rights and everybody was asking about the movie and it spent 14 weeks on the new york times um And I always joke with people, I think it's really interesting that as far as sales and publicity goes, the most important thing a book can be is not a book, but a movie or a show, you know? And it's just like, because it's a little disheartening that you're like, my book will sell so much better if it's not a book. But that is is the world and that is where the, the direction the dollars flow. No, that's, that's true. Totally merchandising and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. But it, it's a, it's advertising. It's free advertising for your book. And I've had people say, what if they make a terrible movie? I'm like, then I have a terrible widespread two hour long advertisement <laughs> for my book and people will still buy it. And what I'm interested in is having readers, you know, If they made a movie and it was great, that would be fabulous. But what really makes me excited is having readers. Are your books an audio book then? Let's see. Most of them are. Um, I know that that the Wing series, except for the last one, is. um, Life After Theft is. uh, The first two Earthbound books are. And the whole Glitter series is. 
So did you pick the audiobook artist or did you? I think I always did, if I remember correctly. I'm like, it was so long ago. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I got to pick for all of them. And I also um, kept the same narrator. If there was a series and they continued doing the audio audiobooks, they were able to get the same reader, which was nice. Yeah, no, we do that as well with our publishing company. We keep the same narrator. I think they try um, because people that are really into audiobooks get into narrators. Um, mm -hmm. I've certainly been known to really enjoy a book, but particularly for its narrator. And I go searching for other books by that narrator. And I discover books I never would have picked up because I'm like, I really like to listen to Kirby Hayborn talk to me um, or... Uh, Heather Wilds. I love to listen to Heather Wilds talk to me. So those are those are my my favorite male and female narrators right there. And I have discovered books that for no other reason than because they were the narrator for their audiobook. That's interesting. I actually had it happen recently. The guy who narrates the book You in the sequel. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the sequel is. Um, was I started listening to another book and it was him and I was like. This is the you guy. And now I couldn't get it out of my head. Like I could not get the fact that he was this creepy stalker guy. And I was like, this is a you guy. <laughs> now, I was listening to a series once and it was a trilogy. Um, and I, I don't want to say which one it is because I'm going to bash it. Um, but the third, not the book, the, the narrator, the third narrator was a different narrator and the voice was just grating and terrible. And like my favorite character sounded like a super whiny Valley Girl teen. And I have to this day never read that book, the third book, because I just, I couldn't deal with that narrator, even though I gobbled up the first two. Well, I'm with you on that one. I listened to audiobooks. I was just listening to one on the way up here. I'm not going to bash it, but um, she... They, she has two narrators in the book telling two POVs because it goes mm -hmm. chapter, chapter, POV, POV. Yeah, yeah. And one of them, awesome. The other one, I'm like, shut the hell. Like, now, I, is it I, a different I, narrator or is it the same narrator doing a different voice? Nope, different narrator. Different narrator, okay. And I'm like, did, did you want her to sound like this? Because I'm like, skip to the next chapter. I'm missing all the plot line, but skip mm -hmm. to the next chapter because... I cannot take how this girl talks. So. I listened to a romance the other day and based on the best-selling status of the author, I'm sure that she got to pick her narrator and it starts out and she's got this big high voice and it wasn't quite Julia Childs, but it almost was. And I was like, and then like the mother comes in and she's like, and now I just have a normal Regency voice and it's rather nice and comforting. And then the daughter starts to talk again. And by daughter, I mean like a 24 year old. This is not a, a 14 year old who this narrator just doesn't know how to do a teenager. And I was just like, I'm sure that when the author picked this narrator, she heard the mother voice. And I would just be appalled if I had been that author to be like, you did that voice for my first person romance. So she's like, like not just all the dialogue, but all of the internal thought and all the prose in, in between dialogue. All of it is this like high sing songy voice. And I was just like, that's terrible. <laughs> I felt bad for the author. No, and, and 
she might think it's great. Everybody has different things. This is true. That they love. We've all learned that. Everybody has different things that they're like, this is so fantastic. And we're like, no, it's not. It's really not. <laughs> You're None like, no. Us- you yeah. have the wrong opinion. <laughs> I, with audiobooks, there are certain audiobooks that w- when I'm driving, the noise my car makes is the same noise as the voice, and I can't hear them in the car. That perfect pitch. That perfect oh, pitch. I was funny. like, I can go speed, and then I can hear you, or I can go really slow on the highway, and then I can hear you. But like, speed limit is the same tone, so I miss like a couple syllables, and it's just enough. I'm like, I can't understand this. This is terrible. That is it's hilarious. Weird. That is, I, 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 I blame this. my tires. <laughs> yes. Well, so for those listening, if you own a mini, you may not be able to hear your audiobooks. <laughs> it could be because are... I went to a lot of loud concerts in my youth. Maybe that's catching up to me as well, but there's a certain register of the voice that is just disappears into the car. I want to see that review. This narrator is exactly the same pitch as my tires. Couldn't understand a thing. Two stars. Right. <laughs> could have been awesome. Could have been terrible. Not sure. No, that's when you got to do a five-star review. And then a one-star review was, I love this story. I love the narrator. Um, it was too short. One-star review. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm decided I want to search it. And such small portions. Yes, I just want to start randomly reviewing things with inappropriate star ratings for what they are, because I think more people need to do that. Mm -hmm. Five star review. I like the cover. Done. (laughs) Just out there. Okay. So actually, we're getting near the end. I can't believe we're getting near the end. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. But what advice would you give authors out there? Little nugget, little golden (sighs) nugget of advice. Don't stop writing. I have taken most of the summer off and I'm really struggling to get my wheels turning again. Not because I don't still love it. Not because I don't, you know, because I've forgotten how or because I don't have a plot, but just because I've stopped those wheels. I'm a train and I have to get the train going again. And like I was moving forward literally for years. I mean, it was unusual for me to take a week off and I haven't like consistently done any writing in about four months now and I'm just like how do I do this again like going back Um, to the gym yes yes and you're sore all over again and like it hurts (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah don't don't stop keep those wheels going even if it's you know you know journaling or blogging or short stories or poetry um i think even reviews about covers there we go or creative ones you can always go to like the the big pens for women and write one of those creative reviews have you ever seen those those are funny they're like i couldn't write correctly with my tiny woman hands until i discovered big pens for women um, you know what's scary? There are people that read that and actually believe that's an accurate yes, representation yes. of that pen. Oh, man. No, I love the, the products that just attract those kinds of reviews and you just have a good chortle over those. Um, so, yeah, keep writing. Keep those wheels greased. Um, and, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning, there are so many paths to publication right now. Um, you can do all sorts of things. There's a... Uh, Amazon is, has 
started a new program and I've, I've only like literally stuck my toe into it. This is so, so I don't know very much here, but it's called Kindle Bella and it's for short serial stories. So, you know, a 2220 page short bit that you release serially. Um, and I, I, I have a story that fits into that format and it's not its turn yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, something where it's, it's short story arcs that all go together. Um, and in my case, it's like parts of a huge doorstopper novel, but I think that they fit nicely into parts. So that's something that I've considered doing with that story eventually, but there are lots of different avenues and lots of different formats of writing that you can do. Very, very true. Okay. Your latest book was heat. You want to hold it yes. up again? I do heat, and that is part of the dragon series. Uh, the series on dragons, correct? Yes. That is the dragon on the cover. Look at that; it's very yes. subtle, but I like it. Oh, my husband did that. He's That's my cover subtle. designer, and look, I'm so sexy. Ooh, I'm still using my author photo from 12 years ago because it's that good. You know, people do it on dating apps all the time. Might as well. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. On LinkedIn, I feel like it's the same thing. Even though it's a professional network, I look at mm -hmm. some LinkedIn pictures. And then I meet the person and they're like, I'm Bob. And I'm like, that is, no, but you look like that. See, unlike I have the a lot more person, of a tan now. I moved from the desert to Florida and I got tanner. And I didn't think that would happen. But it did because I moved closer to the equator. <laughs> all the science. sweating that's science lots of sweating there's a lot of sweating in florida yes we, we have florida. three months of moist in the it's summer. moist always always <sighs> so moist okay so how do fans locate you and your books not like personal address but like what is the best way to find you on social media and other avenues so the best place to find all of that is on my website which is aprilandpike.com um, and that will give you links to my Twitter, which I am on hiatus from right now, but I will go back on and tell them about this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> taking a little break to get writing done because I am behind on the second book, which is called smoke, but I'm working on it. Um, uh, but all of the links to everything that I do, I have an Instagram that I almost never post on. I have a Facebook that my husband posts on it for me because I don't actually know how to Facebook. Um, and well, usually now you're you way behind. There's no point in learning because that's right? around on the face. Right. Like I used to have one. a blog spot when everyone had a blog spot and that was a lot of years ago. And I think I technically do still have a Tumblr, but there's no way I posted anything on that in at least four years. Now you need TikTok. Mostly Twitter, but not Cats right. Cats are fighting with the staircase carpet. That's <laughs> to to. Anyway, okay. Well, thank you very much for being on this podcast. You have been thoroughly, phenomenally awesome. Thank you. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. This has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. My co-host has been Jam Paquette. Our amazing guest has been April Lynn Pike. And we will see you next time. <laughs>